Our next guest is Dr. Elaine Polonese, a board-certified plastic surgeon who works in our office. Very talented, lots to tell us about, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Yeah, he was a great podcast guest. I'm so impressed with Dr. Polonese. Um, He's been with us uh, about a year now, but really full-time in the office just um, in the last month. He's getting busy. Um, He's extremely talented in um, body sculpting and um, mommy makeover procedures. Um, But more importantly, he's just a really nice guy. And the volume of cases that he saw in Albany and in Manhattan, um, there's no one like him here. I mean, he has been doing this and doing it well, and I'm really excited he's part of the practice. Please enjoy it. But what do I know? I'm just a vagina doctor. Dr. Alain Polonese. Good morning. Welcome to the Vagina Doctor Podcast. Great so, to have you. So happy to be here. <laughs> and being here now means Santa Barbara to you, doesn't it? Because you've now made the move. I've made the big move uh, across the country. Recently drove 3,000 miles from New York to Santa Barbara. Something I've always wanted to do, but now that it's done, I'll never do it again. <laughs> never do it again. Never do it again. <laughs> it does sound very attractive initially, but I think after a day or so, it would be pretty old. Well, you know, it's uh, it's really good to see um, the different landscapes. It's pretty amazing when you drive through the middle of the country, mm-hmm. uh, pretty flat and hot and lots of cornfields. And then when you hit Colorado, Utah, it just dramatically changes. So it's... Uh, it was quite something. Yeah, that's great. Well, welcome to Santa Barbara. We love, really happy that, that we've got you here full time. Yeah. Um, looking back at things, medical degree in uh, the Dominican Republic, um, and um, then residency in New York, uh, general surgery residency. Oh yeah, my uh, my story is complicated. Yeah, it, no, it is, but, but, but you know, I was born in the islands. My dad was in the hotel business, so we uh, jumped around from island to island uh, quite a bit. Uh, but I did go to medical school in the Dominican Republic, <clears throat> so that's why I'm fluent in Spanish. And then I did um, training uh, in Europe. Um, in in France, I did a year of general surgery, in and plastic surgery. And that's why you're fluent in French and, also. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I did speak that before. But um, yeah, and then I did general surgery in New York, um, in New York City and on Long Island. And then I did a year of burns and critical care at New York Hospital. And then I did plastic surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And then after that, you, and for the last 17 years, I think, you've had a very, very busy practice in New York, in Manhattan and in Albany. Right. Um, Well, after my training, I did also do a year of uh, traveling around the world, Mm -hmm. uh, training and visiting with different plastic surgeons that... uh, that I was very interested in what they're doing, and that helped me to, you know, expand my technique and hone my skills and really focus on what I do now. And uh, from the very beginning, I focus on you know breast and body um, work. But um, <clears throat> but after the traveling, I did set up my practice in Manhattan, and I was uh, practicing there on the Upper East Side for uh, the first seven years of my practice. And then my daughter was born was born in New York City. Um, and a lot of things happened around that time, but we didn't want to raise her in the city. And that's how we ended up 
pretty much in upstate New York. And that's where I've grew my practice over the last, gosh, almost 25 years now. Wow. Yeah. So this is really when the breast doctor meets the vagina doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The meeting of the minds. Yeah, really, absolutely. (laughs) But today we're talking about breasts. All right. Okay. Um, So much to talk about. I mean, controversial uh, initially, um, the trends, um, the the concerns, et cetera, et cetera. Just tell us. Tell us the history. Oh, my God. Well, breast surgery has certainly evolved, and I've seen the evolution being in practice for a quarter century now. Um, But, you know, I mean, the the first breast augmentation was done in the early 60s. And uh, from then, you know, Trends in breast augmentation sort of followed trends in in ideal body image. And if you look at the early 60s, you know, um, actresses, people like Marilyn Monroe and, I don't know, Jane Mansfield, these are body images that were very, very curvaceous and had larger breasts, smaller waists, very full figures. And I think the trends followed with that. And all through the 70s and 80s, the trends were really getting bigger and bigger um, with uh, silicone breast augmentation. Um, And then, of course, in the early 90s, while still the trend still going toward bigger breasts, uh, the issue in the early 90s was the controversy with silicone implants themselves, you know, with leaking and and concerns with uh, health issues. So there was a ban imposed on silicone implants. So the trend then turned to saline implants, which allowed surgeons to even go bigger because you can overfill saline implants and go really big uh, to the point where we, you know, we were seeing implants in the well over a thousand cc's wow. per side, mm-hmm. especially in different markets, but especially in Miami and places like that, you would really see the strength toward oversized, enormous implants. And obviously that has its own series of health issues and complications. Um, And I think that kind of continued all the way till the early 2000s. And really toward 2010, you've seen the the trend really go in the opposite direction, where people were requesting much smaller implants. They were really um, looking for natural looks, um, very understated uh, results. And I think it's probably also because over the years when women who've had these large, large implants for many, many years have started to have issues that you have with large breasts like back pain or capsular contraction, we can talk about that. But I think a lot of these things started with women certain, uh, wanting a certain look and then realizing that that carried certain consequences and health-related issues. And then the trend really started to decrease since uh, 2010, I would say. And then really since the pandemic, 2019-2020, it's really been the opposite trend toward more breast reductions and complete removal of breast implants and women looking to options uh, you know, for reconstruction or to add volume after removal of breast implants. And part of that is, uh, is using fat implants. Um, right. Well, obviously, once you remove implants, especially implants that have been in for many, many years, and you have a cosmetic consequence. So what do you do after that? How do you restore some of the volume? So there's a lot of things that have to be done. Sometimes it's, you know, revision lift or reconstruction of the breast. 
And fat transfer is definitely uh, a great tool that we have to restore missing volume, but also, you know, reshape the breast to a very natural look using the patient's own tissue. So it's been really good. But how long, how long does that last, the fat in the breast? Well, you know, you do reabsorb some of the fat. So I always tell people, if you're going to use fat, uh, you have to know that your body's going to reabsorb a certain amount of it. I would say at least 25% of the fat that you put in. And then over time, I think once, you know, swelling settles and things settle down, it, they do tend to look a little smaller. So I, I say to people that want larger volumes using their own fat that you may have to have more than one series of fat transfer. You may have to do it more than once. But the fat that you put in, if it's put in with a very meticulous technique in very thin layers, I mean, that fat cell does take in the new location. So it is a permanent result in that sense. I've noticed that when people get fat transfer to their face, it's kind of lumpy. Does What happens in the breast with the fat? Well, in the face, you know, you, obviously it's very thin tissue. And even in the face, if you're doing it, you shouldn't do a very superficial injection. Because then, yes, you will have lumpiness and contour deformities. And the same thing happens in the breast or anywhere where you inject fat. You have to use meticulous technique. And by that, I mean, if you're injecting it, you can't inject a large volume in one area. Because that's just going to clump up and form a cyst or even fat necrosis, which is where the fat cell actually dies because you've put in too much in one area. So the fat cell is not in contact with healthy tissue or blood supply. And if the fat cell is not in, isn't getting adequate blood supply, it's not going to survive. So you have to inject it in very, very thin layered layers, I guess. Uh, and that's how you would assure yourself that you, you're going to get the most take from your fat transfer. So do you do it in like different parts of the breast? I mean, how it sounds like there is more strategy involved than I thought. Oh, there this. is. So if you're looking at <clears throat> the anatomy of the breast, you'll have obviously, you know, the skin and then under the skin, you'll have a thin layer of fat. And then under that, you'll have a, the breast tissue itself. And then behind the breast tissue, you'll have another layer of fat and then, you know, the ribs. So there's layers where you normally have fat and that's mostly where you want to inject the fat. You're not literally trying to inject the fat into the breast tissue. Okay. Because that's, you know, that's not where you have fat. So you try to inject the fat in layers where you would normally have the fat. And if you do it meticulously, and you may have to do again more than one session, but you can get very good take of the fat and a very good result. Going back to what you said about sort of the history of, of implants, what about the what about the history of um, pathology now that it's been so many years later and you've seen so much? What, what can you speak to about when you're removing implants and what you're finding? And Well, well let's start at the beginning where what, what happens when you put an implant in? An implant's a foreign body, so when you put it in, your body's going to form a natural shell of scar tissue, and that's called a capsule. And that capsule is this soft, glistening tissue that you can't even feel. You, you don't really know it's there, and every person with a breast implant has that. But I would say, in my experience, 5 to five to 10% of patients develop what's called a capsular contracture. So that's where the capsule becomes very hard and tight. And especially if you have a ruptured implant, that silicone gel is very irritating. 
and that can create a very thick, hard capsule. So when patients uh, have had implants for many, many years, and especially when they're ruptured, that capsule gets progressively harder and tighter to the point where it becomes hard as a rock. And that's where you have what they call a grade four or very severe capsule. And then if that continues, then that capsule can even become calcified, where it turns into calcium deposits, almost like almost like bone. It's really, really dramatic. Yeah, and we <clears throat> we do have some pictures too to show of that, I think. Yeah, um, I, I have uh, quite a few examples. So this is uh, an example of a, an implant that's been in for, gosh, well over 20 plus years. And you can see that I've um, removed the capsule and the implant on block. So that's a term that's used a lot, uh, meaning removal, complete removal of the entire implant with the surrounding capsule. So just like an egg, you remove the entire thing. But when you open that up, you, you'll see the implant on the inside, and very often you'll find a ruptured implant, but also you'll find these calcium deposits, um, which are within inside the, the shell of the capsule surrounding the implant. And they can be very, very hard and very, very sharp as well. Well, the other day we were looking at one of your videos, and I... You had you just like popped out one of the implants, and I'm like, wait, is it that easy to get them out? <laughs> well, you, you know, you said, wait, no, yeah. it's not. When so, you're seeing that video of me popping it out, that's after an hour and a half of work of dissecting it out. I know. So go into so, that dissecting. Are you are you sending things off to get you know tissue looked at, or what what goes on there with that? Well, the dissection you know, involves, again, meticulously going around the entire capsule so that you're removing the capsule and the content intact in, in one piece. Because not only does the capsule contain the implant, which is often ruptured, but it could also contain fluid that's surrounding the implant. And it's important if you're going to do a pathological analysis, it's really important to send all of that off to the lab so they can look at everything, look at the capsule, look at any fluid, to look for things like, um, you know, breast implant-associated large cell lymphoma. So that's mm -hmm. another big topic uh, to discuss um, because I think it was back in 2017 this was first um, described, and it's not something that we really even knew about much before then. But in certain patients, especially those with um, textured implants, uh, some of them were found to have this fluid collection around the implant and when the fluid was sampled it was found to contain lymphoma cells large cell lymphoma cells within the fluid but it's also been found within the capsule so it's important if you're doing if you if you suspect this at all and if you're doing a implant removal it's very important to try to remove the entire capsule with the entire implant along with any fluid that you encounter so that that can be analyzed in pathology but is that is that um, conditioned from having implants? It's definitely associated with the implant. We're not exactly sure how and why it happens, um, but it's we're starting to, to see more and more reports you know, worldwide coming mm -hmm. um, on on this on this very subject. So it's hard to say how widespread it is. I mean, I've never actually personally seen a case 
but more and more reports are coming out, so it's a very big concern, which is why, you know, Allergan, the implant company, actually issued a recall, voluntary recall of their textured implants, so mm-hmm. we no longer really use those. Um, but that would be different than what we're getting a lot of calls about right now, and that is the breast illness. Right. So yes, women... And implant removal. A lot of women are concerned about the risk of lymphoma, especially if they know that they have textured implants. So that's one reason women are seeking to have them removed. But the other one is what's called breast implant-associated illness. And that's a very vague constellation of symptoms, things like weakness, arthritis, skin rashes, mental fog, depression... And these are all symptoms that can be very severe and that have lasted for many, many years. And typically what will happen is uh, the person who has these symptoms has gone through a battery of tests and doctor visits trying to get to the bottom of it. It was all with negative results until they just sort of say, well, the only thing that I can know that I have left that could be causing this could be the implant. And then anecdotally speaking, in my practice, I've had many, many cases where Patients have come with these symptoms and we've removed the implants and the symptoms have resolved. So it's definitely something, there's definitely something to it. Uh, I don't know the exact pathophysiology or the reason behind it, but definitely, you know, implants are causing an immune reaction and who knows what cascade of symptoms that can cause. But definitely in my experience now, in my practice, I'm removing far more implants than I'm putting in. And the majority of women that I remove these implants do report relief of their symptoms. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too in the office um, recently in the cases that you've been doing. And I think it's the patients that come in for implant removal, are they're just they've decided they're ready. They want them out. But there is sort of that emotional component after they're out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very um, intimate thing, you know, breast mm-hmm. and breast implants. Yeah. And especially if you're, you've, you've, you know, a lot of these women have lived with this for decades plus where they've, they've either been unhappy with their breasts or self-conscious about their breasts or their breasts have interfered with their social lives, daily activities. I mean, it's a very, very important thing. And then when you, and a lot of them don't even know that um, that it's possible to remove them and have a good aesthetic result. So that's why when we finally do go down that road and we explain all the possible options, it's really a dramatic change and uh, very, very rewarding. What are those possible options? Like, because... A lot of people, let's say they don't want fat. No, I don't want, I don't want fat. I just want them out. Um, but I'm worried because they're bigger and what's going to happen? Am I going to be drooping down to my belly button? Like what's like, what do you do? Right. Well, that's where we have a very detailed uh, conversation during the consultation because <clears throat> it, it there's so many factors that affect that. And of course, the number one is, the patient's own anatomy and how much of their own breast tissue they have. uh, The skin quality is also very important because if somebody has very good skin quality, if they don't have a lot of loose skin on the breasts or stretch marks 
or a lot of inherent drooping of the breast, then it is possible to just remove the implants, allow the breast tissue to contract and tighten up on its own, and you can get a very, very nice, acceptable cosmetic result with that. How, how long, though, does that take? Like, what do you say to patients? Like, like Duncan, with labioplasty, you'll say to patients, don't look at it for... Yeah. <laughs> don't look down there for six months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what, what is like that it. realistically? Is it... What is it? Is it... You know, it's pretty amazing. The, the, <clears throat> the results, I would say, are pretty immediate. Okay. Now, obviously, you know, if we're removing implants and we're doing a capsulectomy complete... There's a lot of manipulation going on, so there will be some swelling, there might be some bruising, but typically at their first visit, they will see the results, albeit with some swelling or bruising, but it doesn't take very very long for the results to sort of settle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So you will see the results right away. So I tell people when they come in for their first visit, you know, what you're seeing now is the result with... a possible swelling and bruising. Over time, that's going to subside. But the overall shape that we've obtained is seen at the first visit. So for example, if we're just removing implants, um, there will be, I would say, a period of maybe three to four weeks where you will continue to see those changes as far as swelling coming down. Mm -hmm. um, but if we're doing something else that's more involved, like removing implants, removing a capsule, doing a revision lift, or doing fat transfer, then yes, even though you're going to see the results right away with the swelling, there's going to be maybe a two to three month period where you're going to have to wait for that swelling to subside. In terms of uh, patient recovery after procedures, how does this, how does the explant uh, compare to the implant? I mean, is just setting the, the, the scene for patients to know what to expect. Right. Um, they've, they've been through the implant. They know what that felt like. How, is, this, is this, I guess it, it really depends on how much you're doing and how much reconstruction you're doing and how it much does, It does depend because when you have an implant like the one I just showed who's very calcified and hard, I mean, it is very hard to remove those surgically, mm -hmm. especially when we're trying to do it in, in one piece. So the surgery itself... Um, is very, um, you know, it's a delicate surgery, but it's very involved. Um, but as far as recovery is concerned, uh, the recovery from a breast augmentation is much worse because when you first put in implants, you're, you're stretching that muscle, especially if you're putting the implants under the muscle. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, discomfort or pain from that muscle stretch is much worse at the initial breast augmentation. With an explantation, um, I would say there's going to be just your normal postoperative discomfort, but it's nothing like, um, in my experience, nothing like when you have a primary augmentation. Wow. Okay. Now, patients still do need to be very cautious for a good two weeks. And by cautious, I mean, you know, avoid strenuous effort, avoid heavy lifting, avoid activating the upper body muscles like the pecs, because the more active they are, the more swelling and fluid accumulation can occur because, you know, that empty space where the implant was, we want that to close and down and the tissues to heal. So it's very important to, for the patient to take, take it easy for at least two weeks. We, we talked about this the other day um, because we were talking about the podcast and uh, we were saying like the lifespan of, of an implant. And the funny thing 
was is that Duncan told me the other day that he was uh, talking to a patient who had had implants in for uh, probably 30 years. And uh, there was a bit of, well, we were a bit of discussion about um, him saying, well, if they're not bothering you, it's fine. Um, so I just want to go into that a little bit more because we do get those calls a lot where, well, they're not bothering me. Um, so I just want to know your thoughts about that. Well, they may not be bothering you in the sense that they're not causing pain or discomfort. But if somebody has an implant that's 30 years old, well, first of all, that's a 30-year-old implant. So it's not one of the new generation implants. So that's that older silicone is much more fluid, much more viscous. Mm -hmm. So if there was a, an issue with... Um, if something would happen where they would rupture the capsule. So again, look, think of the capsule as an egg. And if you crack a fresh egg in that, what's, what's inside the egg is just very viscous and liquid. It will leak out the outside the egg. And that would be an old implant, which could then leak out into the actual breast tissue, which you don't want. A newer implant is much more cohesive so basically, if you cut one of the, uh, the newer implants and half the gel doesn't leak out, so it's more like a, maybe a hard-boiled egg. So if you crack it, it's not going to leak out. Everything will still be contained. So an older implant does have an inherent risk of silicone leaking into the breast tissue. And a 30-year-old implant is, I would say, 99% chance it's ruptured within that capsule. And the what, patient what just doesn't know saline? it. What if it's saline? Well, if it's saline and it's ruptured, then it, the, the saline water will leak out. And the breast yeah. will go flat, so you'll know. Yeah. But a silicone implant, the gel is still all going to be there somewhere. So it's you, the breast itself won't go flat, necessarily won't change. Don't we have a picture of that? I oh, we, we uh, yeah. Somewhere. So um, we'll just... Right so, there. Well, this is an oh. example of a patient that had silicone implants. But as you can see on the left side, so the, the obviously the tissue that you're seeing is the capsule. That's, that's what was surrounding the implant. Um, but on the left one, the one that says, I guess to my right, but it says left, that's the in, an intact implant. Mm -hmm. And the one on the other side was the same implant, but completely ruptured. So you can see the shell of the implant on top there. Right. And all the stuff on the bottom was the gel that was within the shell. So that's an old, older generation silicone implant. Again, in there for over 20 years, just one side was intact. The other side was ruptured. And you can see the difference between the two within that capsule. Yeah. You guys are doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. Oh, okay. Now here, here, cause we were also talking <laughs> and here's the picture where I'm like, oh, you know, the original, uh, the boob job, which is what it was called, um, was like the shelf, um, look, which here we have, is that Pamela Anderson? I think it is Pam Anderson. Yeah. And, and again, I think this is an example. Who I love, of <clears throat> I just love her by the way. Yeah. But Likewise. And I think that, you know, this was uh, the time when she had her breast augmentation. This was what, I guess, was the trend. This was what people were looking for. Right. But this is, uh, for, first of all, a larger implant. Mm -hmm. And you can, if you look really close, you can see some slightly, slightly, the edges aren't, slight, aren't completely soft little, or little round. Asymmetrical. Little mm. bit. So she, I would say, obviously I haven't examined her myself, but just by looking at this picture, I would say she definitely has a component of capsule, capsular mm -hmm. contracture. So they're a little tight. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of, of a look that 
people aren't really going for today. I mean, right. in my practice, people come in requesting a much softer look, uh, smaller implants. They actually want people to not necessarily know that they had a breast augmentation. So they want right. that natural, soft look. And they also don't want implants to interfere with their daily activities. You know, I have very active people, people that exercise, people that do yoga, Pilates, and they don't want their implants interfering with that. They actually tell me, that I just want to forget that I have implants. I just want to be a very natural look, go up maybe one cup size, but I very rarely, and honestly, if I rarely get requests for larger, larger implants anymore. Mm -hmm. And if I did, I would actually decline. I would tell patients, I'm maybe not the doctor for you at this point because I won't do it. <laughs> Yeah, because there's of the complications that happen after. Right. So. Quick so thought about uh, mammography and implants. Um, they often get concerns from radiologists that they're not seeing things as well. Um, is, is that something discussed with patients ahead of time? Well, I always have that discussion with patients. Uh, so it is true that an implant can obscure certain breast cancers, depending on where they are. But placing the implant behind the muscle helps with that in the sense that you have a separation. So there's muscle separating the breast from the implant. Mm -hmm. And there are so many women with breast implants that, you know, radiologists have developed, you know, techniques and views with mammography that they can really image the breast very well. But if there was a breast cancer in the posterior part of the breast, very close to the implant, it is possible that you would not be able to see that very, very well in mammography. And if there was any doubt or concern, then an MRI is the next test that would really show you everything. So uh, having a breast implant really does not interfere with breast cancer detection nowadays because there are many, many different ways of imaging the breast that, that are very effective with implants in place. If we look at one of the um, uh, very significant evaluations or, or, or ways of checking breasts, which is self-breast examination. It's actually easier with an implant. That is very true. The implant does project the breast yeah, further. absolutely. And sometimes uh, masses or lumps that would not have been felt easily otherwise are very easily felt with a breast implant. Or, or the contrary, too, that, um, you know, some people and, and uh, physicians and, and uh, patients alike will... Uh, do a breast examination and it's hard to tell because there are lumpy ribs underneath and and uh, it's hard to know sometimes what's there. Whereas with the implant, it's all up in front of you right. and it's easy, actually easier to examine that way. It's not so much uh, I've, I've not, I've missing something that might be there the other way around that you're not going to get concerns because somebody's feeling something that's really just a rib underneath. Right, so, very true. So I've, I've found that to be true as yeah, well. absolutely. Well, I just love your work. Um, I've seen um, quite a few cases now coming out of the office that you've done. We have a couple pictures here of um, before and afters of implant removal, and one of them I think has a fat transfer. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Okay. So this is an example of someone, again, who's had breast implants in for... <clears throat> probably 10, 10 or 12 years, and um, was not having any major issues with them, but was concerned about what we talked about, you know, the possibility of uh, down the road of large cell lymphoma and the possibility of capsular contracture and breast implant-associated illness. 
So this patient had all those concerns and just wanted her implants out. She wanted to add a little bit of volume, but uh, obviously, again, we weren't going to replace implants, so fat was the option. So uh, with this patient, I did an approach with a small incision in the crease under the breast. You can't even see the scar. Removed the old implants, did a complete capsulectomy. Of course, again, everything was sent to the lab. And then she had very good skin quality and her nipples were in the proper position. So she didn't need a revision lift, but we added some fat with fat transfer to restore some of the volume. And these are the results at, uh, at six months. So at this point, all the swelling has gone down, things have stabilized, and this is her result. So you can get a very nice, soft, natural result um, with this technique. Yeah. Excellent. And just to show you one other case, so this is um, another situation where the implant was just removed and it was possible to get a very nice result um, just with implant removal because of the quality of the skin and because she had enough of her own breast tissue. So obviously that's something that I would determine at the time of the examination to see how much of that volume is implant, how much is her own native breast mm -hmm. tissue. But once you determine that the patient does have enough of her native breast tissue, then you can propose just removing the implant and allowing the, the skin envelope to tighten up on its own. And you can get the result that you see there. Now, obviously, the result that you see there, there's much less volume, but that's what the patient wanted. She didn't want to add any more volume. She wanted to be rid of the implants and just have the soft, natural look with her own tissue. And that's what we achieved. And no lift on this one? Just No, no lift on this one. Yeah. That's yeah. a great result right there. Love that so one. So it's... Um, it's just very important to examine the patient and really have a detailed conversation about what's possible and what the options are. What but if you... Oh, go on. No. No, you, you go. No. Go, go, go. <laughs> I've talked too much. You go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to thank him. Oh, okay. So you have another question. Well, I, I just, you know, I think it's interesting, <laughs> uh, you know, with like the, just the, the trends and like, the body trends like if we even look at like the kardashian trend like for example <laughs> i mean because you are you know the mommy makeover guy so you know yeah we're talking about you know breast uh you know implant removal today and that's great but you do a lot of mommy makeover and i think that trend probably a couple years ago was really influenced by the kardashians or in the last five years maybe well the amount of um it's true that a lot of people look towards celebrities and Instagram influencers to, you know, guide their idea of what they want in surgery. And it's important to, when they come in for the consultation, and a lot of times they'll come with images or with clips from these social media celebrities to, to say, okay, this is what I want, or this right. is the trend that I'd like to. And it's very important to have a conversation with the patient about what's real. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's true. What's Photoshop? And the fact that oh, I get a lot of extreme Photoshopped images mm -hmm. and I have to explain to them that is Photoshop and that's not anatomically possible. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of that conversation that has to go on. But you're, you're right. The trend has changed there too as far as body sculpting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the days of aggressive liposuction, well, not I never really did that, but the days of patients getting super aggressive liposuction where there's no fat at all, just skin stuck to muscle, you know, that's, you don't see that anymore. And, you know, with fat transfer to the buttocks, that's also a very hot topic that we could talk about all day yeah. too. But um, I do a lot of fat transfers to the buttocks, but 
I would call them on much on the much lower side as far as volume is concerned. So I would call them BBL light <laughs> because I don't put the massive amounts of volume, but it's because it's a balance between sculpting the waist and adding the fat, but not going overboard and not creating a dangerous situation. But is that backed away a little bit, do you think? Are we backing away from the BBL or do you think it's still... Well, we're backing away from the, you mentioned Kardashian BBL for sure. Okay. But BBL is, you know, I, I, I just call it fat transfer to the buttocks because it's mm-hmm. it's just another tool to enhance a hip dip or create a little bit more shape and contour that's going to complement a surgery like a tummy tuck or liposuction of the waist. So it's a very good operation to balance things out, but not create a cartoonish, you know, buttock mm-hmm. or, or body contour. Yeah. So where do you think that's headed? What do you see? Forecast. Forecast the body that people are going to ask you for. Well, they're already asking for it. Again, it's all about natural shapes and contours, not exaggerating anything. And especially when you're talking about the breasts, if you're creating a natural breast and you have to create a soft waist and a natural buttock, because otherwise everything is out of balance. So it's all about balance in the shape and contour of the body. And and I'm really happy that that's the trend that 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 we're seeing now because that's always my personal aesthetic mm-hmm. in breast and body contouring. So I've always tried to, you know, guide my patients in that direction anyway. Yeah, that's great. I'm happy it's going in that direction too. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, absolutely. This, this is great. Really fun. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you talking to us and explaining all of this. And I'm even more excited than the fact that you're working with us at Turner Magalas. That's really great. No, I'm very excited. But I have, a great I, team. I, there, there is, uh, we did ask for some fun fact about you when uh, that the Karen asked uh, as we were putting this together. And the fun fact, I think, is that you're a pilot and yes. you have your own plane and your plane has its own parachute. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I, I did get into, well, I've always loved flying in aviation, but, you know, with, what, medical school training, everything, and you never had the time or the opportunity to do it until recently. So I did get into flying later on in life, but I do love it. But if I was going to do it, I was going to do it as safely as possible. So the plane does have its own parachute. So that adds an element of safety and the only reason I think my wife gets in the plane <laughs> at all. <laughs> but it's, it's an amazing thing, uh, flying. It's really my happy place. Great. Thanks again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Body by Polly. Yes. <laughs> We'd really appreciate a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Thank you. You can always DM the Vagina Doctor Instagram with any questions or topics you'd like to learn more about or email us. The Vagina Doctor Podcast. It all starts here.